That was a difficult message to preach in America. Uh, it seems that one of the founding principles of America is that we should be able to free or be free to worship however we want. Right? Haven't you always heard that? That's part of the heart of what it means to be American, is people want to be free to worship however they want it. And that's what it means to be America. You're free to worship however you want. Um, unfortunately, God says otherwise. God says otherwise. Actually, the Puritans knew that God said otherwise. Um, they came over here not so that people could worship any way they want. That's why, you know, they did things like burn the Quakers. Um, they, 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 what they wanted, what they wanted was to be free to not have to do things that God didn't command. And I know that sounds like a, a fine distinction. They were very committed to the principle, which they believed was scriptural, which I believe is scriptural, that God tells us how he wants to be worshipped. That he doesn't just leave it up to our imaginations. It's way too important for that. Worship is way too important for that. You get that this in the second commandment of the Ten Commandments. But I'll start um, at the beginning so we kind of have the context here. And God spake, or God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I'm going to say something about the last two verses, because a lot of that always strikes people as, whoa, that doesn't sound like the God I know, but I want you to get right off the bat, God cares very much about how we worship. So much so that he attaches that very severe warning to this commandment. Now, how we worship is a big deal. You, even a casual reading of the Bible, if you've just kind of read the Bible a little bit for fun, you've never really studied it or even read the whole way through, I suspect that you picked up on this idea that God says worship is a big deal. Who you worship how you worship is a big deal. There's stuff all over the place in the Bible about it, right? Sometimes what seems to be really picky little details about worship, all of which taken together should at least communicate this. God is very particular about worship. Now, that sounds kind of crazy to us. Like I said, if we're Americans... America is the place where, of all places, you should be free to worship any way you want. And yet God, God seems to be really completely undemocratic here. Telling us, saying, I don't care if you want to worship this way or that way, you can't. And if you do, I'm going to punish your children to the third and fourth generations. Yikes. Because I'm a jealous God. How can we worship God in an authentic way if it's not just a spontaneous outflowing of whatever feels right to us? God doesn't seem to care. He says, worship me this way, not that way. So, so for a lot of people, I, I think you come to this commandment and it seems kind of crazy. 
It seems kind of undemocratic, seems un-American. That's okay. The Bible often seems that way if you actually hear what it's trying to say. But then, for maybe some people, it seems really irrelevant. Okay, I don't make little images of God and worship them. I know images help some people. I know some people that go to churches where they even venerate images, and you can debate whether venerating is worship, and, you know, I think that's a, a distinction that really doesn't have a difference myself. But um, that's not really my thing. Now, I know people that are into that, but that's not really my thing. So this isn't really relevant to me. I like good, solid theology. I'm not into that worship that some people describe as bells and smells. I'm not into all that stuff. I'm into good, solid theology. So this is irrelevant to me. But it's not irrelevant to you. Because even, even saying that I would pick this aspect of what God says, that I really, really care about theology, but worship, ah, that doesn't matter that much, is really, um, is really not being true either to what the Bible says about worship or about theology, actually. But in this commandment, God says, it's not just who you worship that matters. That was commandment one. Have no other gods before me. But this commandment, this commandment says, it's not just who you worship that matters, it's how. And again, Scripture is amazingly detailed about the hows of worship. Now, Christians, yeah, yeah, I don't know if you know this or not. If some of you have grown up in a Catholic tradition or Lutheran tradition, you may know that different Christians number the Ten Commandments differently. Did you know that? Catholics and Lutherans follow them, and probably other groups too, but those are the only two I know about, so those are the only two I'll mention. Um, number, what, what I'm calling Commandment 1 that I preached on last week, have no other gods before me, and this one, don't bow down to an idol, don't make any image of God, they regard that as all one commandment in the Catholic tradition. And when you get down to coveting, which other Protestants regard as a single commandment, commandment 10, they split that one in half. And so there's two commands about coveting, coveting these things and coveting these things. So the, the Catholics and, and Lutherans number the commandments one way, Protestants number them another way. The reason, actually, is kind of important. Um, besides kind of, you know, what does the Scripture say? And the Scripture doesn't tell us. It doesn't say 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, or 9, or 10. It says, you know, that there are ten commandments, but it doesn't break down exactly how to number them. So Christians debate this sort of thing, right? Um, but the reason that the, that, the, that the Protestants following John Calvin thought it very important to, to, to point out that commandment one was, you shall have no other gods before me, and commandment two dealt with worship, is that for a lot of the, the Protestant reformers, to them, the problem with the medieval church was about worship give you a little church history, because it's, it's helpful when you think about this. Um, you know, there were different groups at the time of the Reformation that thought that the, that the church throughout the mid Middle Ages had acquired some real misunderstandings um, and wrong ways of doing things, wrong ways of understanding Scripture, okay? So then the Protestant Reformation is a, really a back-to-the-Bible movement, saying, well, we're doing, you guys are doing all this stuff, but it's not really in the Bible. And besides that, it's even distorting what the Bible says, because of all these things that we're doing. That was, that was what those arguments were about. But here's the interesting thing. Martin Luther, who you may know, was kind of the first big public figure of the Reformation, nailed these 95 theses um, to the Wittenberg church door, though I know there's a professor here that doesn't think that happened. He did. Um, and when he did that, what he really thought the problem was was not worship. He didn't think the problem was the worship of the church. He thought the problem really was works righteousness, that the church had gotten confused about how we get access to God. 
And he thought there were places in the worship service where that was confused. And so if we just change the wording a little bit, we can keep the worship service pretty much as it is. Luther thought the biggest problem with the Catholic Church was works righteousness. John Calvin actually saw it differently. He saw it differently, and thus the reform that he wanted to do was more, was more thorough. And the Puritans who came to this country were followers of Calvin, not Luther. So it's helpful for you to know that Calvin thought the biggest problem with the church of the Middle Ages was worship. And particularly that the church had added all kinds of things to worship that there was no explicit scriptural command for. And what Calvin really argued for and what the Puritans who came to this country were, were arguing for and wanting was freedom to not have to do stuff that wasn't required in Scripture because of their understanding of this commandment and the idea that God regulates how we are to worship him, that it's not a free-for-all, that the church does not even have freedom to make up stuff. Even if it seems really good, even if it seems really helpful, really exciting, God does not allow us to make up whatever we want and call it worship. There's lots of places in the Bible where, where this kind of point gets argued, and there are different degrees of um, sort of stringency among Christians about how they hold to this principle, and yet this commandment is talking about this very thing. I think Calvin was right about that, that God cares about how we worship him. It's not just as long as you worship the right God, you're free to do it however you want. How we worship God matters. It matters. The point is, worship matters because worship is what we were made for and worship is formative. It's both what we were made to do, but it also shapes us and molds us. Uh, this point is echoed throughout Scripture. One of my favorites is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says that we actually are transformed. How, how do you change as a Christian? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we are transformed bit by bit, or in the King James used to say, from one degree of glory to another as we gaze upon the Lord's glory. And if you remember anything that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote two letters to them that we have. And he said, I determined to know nothing when I was with you except Christ and him crucified. This is the heart of what I preach. This is all I care about. This is the fullest expression and manifestation of the glory of God. So what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3, I, I believe, is that as you gaze upon the cross of Christ, your heart is changed. Like we sang, what can strip the idols of their, their seeming value? It's not just to know that I shouldn't worship idols. It's to see this beauty of Jesus, fairer than the fairest of 10,000, the rose of Sharon. There are all these, these pictures, these descriptions of him that can't even begin to express who he really is. The book of Revelation, you, you, you see John is trying to describe the beauty of this one, Jesus, and, and he ends up writing things that like, are just downright bizarre because it so far surpasses what we can even begin to get our imagination around. This is what changes us. The Bible says that worship really matters. And not only that, there's another way that the Bible gets at this theme. And you find it often in the Old Testament, that those who worship blind and dumb idols, I don't mean dumb like intelligence, I mean dumb, they can't speak. The Bible is all, the prophets are often talking about these idols that you worship. They can't speak, they can't hear, they can't see. And the ones who worship them become like them that those who worship idols become like the idols themselves. They take on the characteristics 
of what they worship. So in the Bible, you see this theme that what you worship really matters because it changes you both in a negative and a positive way. It's a central theme of the Bible that worship matters because worship is formative. It shapes and molds us. And so, you know, I think what we need to think about is thinking about the church, thinking about the church's effectiveness or role or influence in our world, and we have to connect it to this issue of the God we worship. Because the church is only ever going to become that which she worships. Which means this. If, if, if the world, looking at Christians, does not, does not see a people full of grace and truth, perhaps it's because we don't worship a God of grace and truth. In other words, perhaps the reason that the church is so impotent in our world is because we worship an impotent God who we think we can keep on a leash to do our bidding. Perhaps we need more than shrill exhortations. Come on, guys, let's get it together. Let's take this world for Christ in this generation. Come on, we can do it. It happens time and time and time again without really addressing the real issue, biblically speaking, which is, who is the God we worship? If the God we worship is an impotent God who's knocking on the door of sinners' hearts and can't do anything to get the door to open, well, then you can be pretty sure that the church is going to be rather desperate and resort to all kinds of methods to manipulate people because we don't believe God has the power to do it. We're always becoming like the God we worship. And whenever you see a problem in the church, you can always be sure that it first was a problem in our vision of who God is. Worship is so important. And as, as Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the message. That if we begin to, to, to fashion an idol or worship God in a way we want to, it has an effect. God cares even about the form that we think of him in. It's not a mindless, simple little issue. I love this quote from Annie Dillard. I don't know if you've ever read any of her writing, but she talks about this. I think, I think this, is, this is just awesome. I try to find an opportunity to use it like every year in some context. She says, why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. But we don't want that. We don't want to worship that kind of God. It would seriously disrupt our lives. That kind of God can ask you to do things that you don't want to do. We don't like that. And yet, see, we, we, we look around and we say, the church is so anemic. There's nobody really sold out for Jesus. It's because they have a tiny little Jesus. Who would sell themselves out for that? The Jesus of the Bible is worth giving your life for. The Jesus who is. 
So what's the big deal about making images of God? It's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. It's not that God is uncomfortable with artistic expression. The artist par excellence is not bothered by artistic expression. There's lots of places. As a matter of fact, the first thing that's described as a spiritual gift in the Bible are people that are given a spiritual gift to make beautiful um, architecture and artifacts uh, for the tabernacle. So God is not, God is not against art. That's not what this commandment is getting at. But, you know, scholars that, that study the ancient Near East say, yeah, there's no question of what God is getting at with this. The reason people make idols is not because they want to be creative. The reason people make idols, turn their God into these visible manifestations, is because they want to control their God. Making images of God in the ancient Near East, when, where the Ten Commandments were given, was an attempt to gain control over the God's central power. That's why all of these idols that archaeologists dig up have these distorted features, right? Like they have ten breasts and three penises because they're fertility gods. And the aspect of the God that you wanted to have control over, the fertility, in a farm-based economy, fertility is a big deal, right? Um, it, whatever aspect of the God you wanted to have control over, that aspect is, is magnified in the, in the little statue. Because the, the idea was, this is how you control God and get what you want. So when God is telling the Israelites, you can't worship images, it's not just that God is against, um, against sort of physical representations. He doesn't say, don't make an image of me because I'm invisible. He says, don't make an image of me because I'm jealous. And if you make an image of God, you already start to distort who he is. You begin to use him as a tool rather than worshiping him for who he really is. To, to make an image of God is always an attempt to make him into something more fashionable and more utilitarian, something that will help you get somewhere or get something. It's using God as a means to an end. It's having God on a leash. Um, ancient Near Eastern scholar says, listen, it's silly to think that pagan people thought that their gods lived in these little, little huts that they made for them. They didn't. They believed, and we know that they believed the gods lived in the heavens. That's why they often put high places up on mountains hoping that they would be closer to their gods. That's why in the Bible you always read that they set up these altars and these Baal-worshipping places up on the mountains. Okay? But they made these idols because it was their way to gain control over the god. And so, the heart of this commandment is our attempt and our constant temptation to make God controllable. Now it seems relevant, doesn't it? Because we do that all the time. Legalism. The idea that you can, you know, do all the right things and make God like you is always an attempt to get to control God by controlling his opinion of you through the things that you do. In fact, all ritual of any sort is really always an attempt ultimately to control God. And this has huge relevance for you if you struggle with eating disorders or you struggle with obsessive compulsive, all kinds of compulsive disorders that are rooted in this attempts attempts to gain control of your world, which is another way to say to gain control of God. And there's all kinds of ways that we try and do that, some of them more socially acceptable than others. Being a workaholic is maybe a more socially acceptable 
way to do it, at least when you're in college. Now, when you have you know, kids and a wife, then it's not so socially acceptable anymore. And that's kind of hard because it's hard to shift gears when all your life you've been trained that you know, you're only as valuable as the work you can produce. Right? I wonder what midlife crisis is really all about sometimes. Um, but listen, this is so important to understand. The attempt to control God is what God is coming against here. Um, now, listen, this is why I think this warning here is in this, is in this passage, why it's so strong. The warning here makes it clear that God will not be trivialized and he will not allow us to make him conform to our reality. That's what we're always, we're always trying to get God to conform to our vision of the future, to our vision of what human flourishing really looks like. And God says no. And it's a really serious matter. Now, is God saying here that I'm going to punish children for sins they didn't commit? I don't think so. That would be inconsistent with what God says later in Ezekiel. I think the way to read this passage so that it fits with the rest of the Bible is that he's saying this is what happens. As, as I've said it before, Tim Keller puts it this way, when you break God's laws, they break you. What God is saying is when, when you try to control me, dads, and this is particularly, particularly addressed to dads, which kind of makes me shudder a little bit. Dads, when you try to control God, it will have far-reaching effects on your family. I bet some of you could say, yeah, I can give testimony to that. Dads, when you try to control your world and control your God, it will have negative effects on your family for years to come. But look at, look at the balance. This is not a balance. This is not a tit for tat. If you do bad things, you know, this, then if you do a good thing, look the good. If, if, you, if you serve God, right, showing love, it will show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Now, I could say more about that, but I don't, I don't have time. I have a little, um, a little paper if you want to come up here and see. I have other thoughts on that I wish I had time to, to get into. Um, there's all kinds of passages, like I say, that, that I think are really helpful where God talks about um, how he doesn't hold children blame, blame for the sins of their fathers. That, that, that what the Bible is saying here is there's consequences. But he says clearly in Ezekiel that the, sin that's, the soul that sins shall surely die. And that's an important, important principle. But um, keep going here. Turn the, turn the little paper over if you, if you want. Again, paganism was always an attempt to control God. And it, was, it really expressed itself in worship this way, trying to get God to notice you. Do you the, sort of the classic story is um, the prophets of Baal and Elijah, the prophet, on a place called Mount Carmel. In a day when, um, now God actually had promised in Deuteronomy that if people, turn, if people turn from him, he would send drought on the land. And after years of drought, um, God sends his prophet Elijah to have a showdown with the prophets of Baal, who is the false god. Now Baal, you have to know, was a fertility god. Baal was a fertility god. Baal, Baal was really the god of rain, and yet, and what they thought, the people who worshipped Baal, was that the rain was his semen that came down from the heavens and impregnated Mother Earth and thus brought crops and life. Okay? And so what, what they did in Baal worship was they tried to basically get Baal excited so that he would, you know, have you know, his seed spread all over the ground. All right? So 
you know, you get that. This is what you've got to understand. The heart of Baalism is trying to get God worked up, get him to notice you. It seems kind of crazy, and we can chuckle about it a little bit. But the ways you try to get God to notice you are no less crazy. They really aren't. Thinking that you can be such a sweet, sweet person that God will, that God will love you more. Or thinking that you, know, that you can do really well in school, and then God will be sure to bless you with the kind of life that you want. It's just as ridiculous, right? Thinking that we can control God through the kinds of things we use to try to control him. But what happens on, on Mount Carmel, this whole thing, is you know, a lot, you know, the, the prophets of Baal, they get the first shot to try to produce rain. And so what do they start doing? Do you remember? They start dancing around. They start cutting themselves. Again, the idea was as their blood would flow, it would sort of start things working. Um, and it doesn't work. And you remember Elijah's kind of standing over there watching all this. And he's saying, okay, you know, where, where's your God? Try harder. Shout louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he went on a trip. Though in the Hebrew it actually says maybe he's on the toilet. You know, God's prophets use colorful language that sometimes the English translations don't follow. But he, uh, you know, he just mocks them because their idea of God who's dependent upon man is utterly ridiculous. But let me tell you, you and I all the time are tempted to fall back into that kind of idea. Another thing that the prophets of Baal did is they would carve the name Baal into their palm with their knives. The pain was supposed to be a reminder to them. Not only was it sort of to show their God how serious they were, but the pain would remind them of whose they were. But that's what, you know, we sang two hymns tonight that pick up that image because Isaiah picks up that idea of carving your God's name into your hand, and he says, what about our God? Not, you know, your God is so wonderful, you should give him your firstborn. Or not, your God is so wonderful, therefore you should be glad to carve the name Yahweh into your hand. No, your God is the one who inscribes your name on the palms of his hands so that he will never forget you. Do you see the difference? The, 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 the worship of, of, of idols, the worship of paganism, the worship that passes even with the name of Christianity in too many places, is, is this idea that God, I have to do something. I have to hurt myself. I have to wound myself. I have to weep and weep and weep or something to get God to notice me and have mercy on me. The gospel is just the opposite. God wounds himself. Wounds himself because of his commitment to us that he will never let us go. See, Israel doesn't need to control God. Why doesn't Israel need to control God? Because God has already committed himself to his people. If you are a Christian, you will never have to do anything to get God to like you. Can you imagine, can you imagine being in a relationship like that? I mean, I know you, you wish that your relationship with your parents was that way, and they may tell you it's that way, but you know it's really not. <laughs> Come on, you know that. There are things you can do that will really, really try their patience, even the best parents. I mean, God says it this way. He says, can, can the mother forget the babe that's nursing at her breast? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. Even the best parent is but a dim shadow of the love of God. And he says... My opinion of you is based upon what Jesus did, not based on what you do or have to do. 
I want you to know this love. I want you to receive this love. I don't want you to get sidetracked. Listen, whenever you try to worship me as an image, you forget what the gospel really is. You forget. You begin to think that you have to control me. You don't have to control me. I give myself to you. God calls himself our inheritance. Not only are we his inheritance, the Bible says, but he himself is our inheritance. You don't have to get this God on your side. You don't have to keep him in your good graces by what you do. He's given himself to you. He's given himself to you. There's nothing you need to do. You see, this, you need to be reminded of that all the time. Because again, what drives you to your idols, what drives you to put your hope in other things is forgetting that this God is like this. We forget that God is this committed to us. And we feel like we need to cover our bets. Need to hedge our bets. I can't completely put myself in his mercy. I've got I've to do the best I can, too, don't I? Well, sure, you should do the best you can, but not so that God will love you. You should do the best you can because you've been set free, because you don't have to try to impress God anymore. That's what gospel Christianity is all about. See, this is why you need to understand worship, the God that you celebrate and worship, the God that you speak to, the words you sing, the prayers you pray, all of that reinforces either a true vision of God or a false vision of God. So it really matters. And God says it really matters. It really matters whether you worship me in the right way because when you don't worship me in the right way, you actually distort your understanding of who I am. When you feel like Unless I can really kind of whip myself up into a whirling dervish of excitement, God is kind of disappointed with me on Sundays. You actually are preaching a different gospel to your heart. A gospel that says unless you're sufficiently passionate, God is kind of disappointed with you. But brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. And believe me, you will never have passion if you think that's the gospel. Because you can't lump up love for a God that's continually disappointed by your lack of passion. The only thing that will ever bring you passion is to know that his passion is not based on your lack of passion. It's sort of this catch-22, unless you just submit to the gospel. The gospel is what needs to be being reinforced. Who God is can either be reinforced or it can be sort of you know, chipped away at by what we do in worship. And it's so important you understand, worship is more than a celebration. I know there's some churches that talk about worship as the celebration. It's so much more than celebration. It's so much more than a pep rally for God. It should be about bringing us to our knees, humbling us, showing us our sin, showing us Jesus, taking us to the depths and to the heights. Worship can never be a means to an end. That's what this commandment is about. Do not use worship just to try to make yourself feel better to try to forget your problems, to try to get God to like you. Worship is never a means to an end. Worship is having God as the end that you adore. He's it. Listen, it's really important to think about this. And, and the, the culture around us sometimes gets this better than we do, which is really sad. That sometimes the culture sees that, what we're, that worship is often for the Christian church a means to an end. We're trying to get something rather than give. Um, and I'll I give you two quotes that I thought were really, uh, really helpful. One is by this book I've been reading, um, 
Body Piercing Saved My Life by a guy who's not a Christian. He's an editor at Spin and wrote this book sort of after being part of the Christian uh, worship and Christian music community for a year. And he says, I'm not saved. This is, he wrote this right after he was at GMA a couple of years ago and going to some of the worship concerts. And he says this. Now, I'm not saying I agree totally with him, but I think he, he's worth listening to. I'm not saved, and I don't think I ever will be. But if such a miracle were to take place, I can't imagine anything worse than being forced to pay for my salvation by listening to worship music for the rest of my days. Worship music is the logical conclusion of Christian adult contemporary music, not just unappealing, but unbearable to anyone not already in the fold. Worship tunes tend to evince an adolescent theology, one that just can't get over how darn cool it is that Jesus sacrificed himself for the world. Now, that may not be fair about all people that are involved in sort of the worship music industry, but I think it's worth listening to. Why does he think that? Uh, second quote, a little older, but um, probably even more powerful. Friedrich Nietzsche said, if you Christians want me to believe in your God, you have to sing better songs. Did you know he said that? Listen, do you really want people, people that don't know Jesus, that you know, do you really want people to know that what you think about God is more than can fit on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker? I hope so. Well, then listen. You probably need to sing songs that say more than can fit on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. Because you are becoming what you worship. I'm not saying you have to sing all hymns. But it is important that we think about why we're doing what we're doing. Is it contributing to a right understanding of the God who gives himself to us? Or is it contributing to this misunderstanding that we have to do things for God? That we have to continually promise to him, I just want to do this, I just want to do that. After a while, you begin to feel like such a sham and a hypocrite, don't you? The focus in worship should always be upon God and his promises. And that's where it is in the Bible. There's a place for telling God what, what you want to do. Don't misunderstand me. But believe me, the bulk of what the Bible tells us about worship is we need to be focusing on what God has promised to do and what God has done. Um, I, I don't have time to work to, to, to go through all this, but let me just say a couple words about community. Because remember, that's kind of trying to think, now how does this work it out, self it out for a community? Here's the thing. God wants his church to be a countercultural community. And how can we be a countercultural community if at the very heart of our relationship with God, we think that it's really about us, and we think that we're free to do whatever we want, and God will be happy with it? Now, you know, I'm not telling you what you should do in worship. That's probably, could, you know, tons of sermons we could talk about that. But just this concept that God has a right to tell us what to do in worship is a pretty big leap, I think, for a lot of American Christians. And yet, we wonder why we seem to be so anemic when it comes to being a countercultural group of people. It's because at the very heart of our relationship with God, we've bought into this idea that God exists for us rather than we exist for him. We've bought into this idea that worship is a means to an end to make me feel better or to make me feel happy or to make me feel at least not so down. And, and guys, it's so much bigger than that. And 
the, the, only, way, the only way for it to change is, is for the Bible to actually inform the God we worship. How can we be a countercultural community if we worship the way we want? If we disregard his word about how he's to be worshipped, what makes us think that we're going to pay attention to the other things he says that we don't like? We're fooling ourselves. This is the heart of it right here. This is where the rubber meets the road. I, I have a friend, Steve Garber. Some of you guys heard him speak um, at the George Clay concert. And he says, really, he thinks one of the touchstones for whether Christianity is sunk into your heart is does God have a right to tell you what to do with your body? Because in our, in our culture, if there's one thing that's yours to do with what you want, it's your sexuality. God, of course, says, no, it's not. It's not yours to do with what you want. It's a gift that you've been made a steward of. So it is here. Even your worship, even your passion, God says it's not yours to do with what you want. And to the extent that you resist that or accept that is really to the extent to which you understand biblical Christianity. Now, that doesn't mean that you're, that you're doing it, you're living it. I'm certainly not living it. But I long for that. Do we, do we at least have a sense of the goal that God has set before us, which is submitting everything, even our passion, even what we find beautiful to him in his word? This is a helpful question. If you could change one thing about God, what would it be? If you could change one thing about God, what would it be? And the answer to that question has a lot to do in telling you the idol that, you, that you're tempted to make God into. We need, we need a church that gives people a taste both of the strength and the mercy of God. Therefore, we have to worship a God who is both strength and mercy, which is who he is. But we often just, you know, well, of course, the great example in Talladega Nights, you guys seen that, right? <laughs> who, who here, has, almost everybody's seen that movie. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, praying to the little baby Jesus, you know, and, and it just so nails our culture. Well, how often have I talked to students over the years? My Jesus isn't like that. And, and sometimes the argument is really, well, I think the Bible speaks about Jesus this way. That's not usually what people mean. What people usually mean is, I don't really like that Jesus. I like this Jesus, you know? Well, listen, if, if that's the way you approach God and approach prayer, well, then your faith will be probably as, uh, as deep as Ricky Bobby's, right? I mean, the way he understands Jesus has everything to do with his life and his decisions. Of course, it always is, and it is for us too. It's not, it's not just in silly movies. It's always that way. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we get to an end of a message like this and we just cry out, help. Would you open our eyes to see you for who you really are? Would you remove our blinders? Lord, if singing old hymns helps to do it, great. If meeting with people across different cultures who see things differently than we do helps us, great. But Lord, we need to see you for who you really are. We are dependent upon your revelation. We thank you that you have given us your word. We pray that you would help us to be faithful, to read it, to submit to it, not just to sit in judgment upon it and wish it were different. We need, we need your word, and we need your word to do its work in us individually and corporately. Because, Lord, there is a world that is desperate to know who you really are. I pray, Lord, that we would not obscure their vision because our vision of you is skewed. Would you heal us so that we could be both blessed and be a blessing all for your kingdom's sake?